0: guys. Welcome back to the Chasing Truth podcast. I'm Presley. And I'm Grace. And today we have a very exciting interview planned. We are here with Blake Long and Blake is a graduate from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the writer of the blog Theology and Life and the author of the new book Gospel Smugness. Blake, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you guys for having me.
0: Well, of course. So. We just began a new series titled Real Gospel, Real Life, and we thought it was so essential to have you on because I think knowing how to effectively share the good news of Jesus in an effective and loving manner is very key to living a Christian life, and that is what your book, Gospel Smugness, is about. So um, if you just want to share a little background of what inspired you to write this book.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, that's a little providential. I had no idea you guys started the series like that. So
0: yes, that. yes. So we, um, yeah, we did an episode and then you are next. So yeah.
1: All right. Here's the best episode you guys are going to have. <laughs> um,
0: so
1: What inspired the book? So it started out, it was May, July of 2019, or May, June of 2019. And I wrote a blog post. It was called the gospel is offensive, but you shouldn't be. It was, I wrote it in two days on my phone. Like it wasn't anything special. At least I didn't think it was. And I published it the next day. um, I looked at WordPress and just was looking at the stats because, you know, I got, I would get, you know, five views per blog. So it wasn't anything special and like the, the stats were booming, like they were really, really high. And I was really mm-hmm. confused. And I actually went so far as to get in contact with the people at WordPress because I was like, what's the malfunction here? Yeah. Yeah. And the guy basically told me, hey, that's not, it's not a malfunction. That's actually what's happening. Congratulations. I was like, well, how did this happen? Well, I figured out there's a section where you can see the pages or the websites that refer your blog. And I noticed chalice.com. And I was like, mm. well, I know that's Tim Chalice. So I went to his site and I saw that the blog post was on us all the cart section that day. And wow. I got all giddy and excited. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's how it's getting all these views. Um, so what inspired the book is really what inspired the blog post. Um, is we, I, I've seen it, you know, I'm not an expert. I just see it in person and I see it primarily on on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, social media, Mm -hmm. of just Christians, faithful Christians, born-again Christians, that's not an issue, having gospel knowledge, but really not having gospel heart, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Having that knowledge not translate into your heart and expressing love toward other people um, online or in person and kind of not really understanding um, how we should act in Specific context.
2: Yeah. And I just wanted to add that your book, again, Gospel Smugness, has been very, very helpful for me, it just as a very honest and practical. Um, guide to Christian conduct in evangelism. Again, like you said, social media and in Christian fellowship. And so for anyone listening, this book is available on Amazon and we're going to be giving a few away as giveaways. So be sure to watch our social media, specifically Instagram, if you're not already following us there.
0: Yes. Okay. So, So yeah, just jumping back into the heart of the book and discussing why it's so needed. So the main point of the book is just how to share an offensive gospel with an offended culture while displaying Christ-like character. So I just want to start, Blake, could you speak into the three fruits of the spirit of kindness, gentleness, and self-control that you discuss in your book in sharing the gospel in a loving manner?
1: Sure. Sure. I actually spared everybody who read it because at first, the, the, the first draft was I listed out all the fruits of the spirit and I did like a sermon on each of them. And then I decided after editing it, it's probably not necessary. Um, so I, I you know I tried to slim it down to three of them. And so self-control, gentleness and kindness, I think um, it's, it's not something we really think about. And it, the funny thing is, I've, you know, not to plug Tim Chalice again, but I've been reading one of his books, uh, Run to Win, and he talks about um, one of the ways we're, uh, we, we run to win the race of faith is that we have self control. And so, whether that's, you know, here or there or in evangelism, we don't really think about having self control in evangelism. And in the book, I talk about if we first and foremost don't have self control in really all spheres of life, but of course, pertaining to the book in evangelism and in our witness, if we don't have self-control, we're not going to have kindness and we're not going to be gentle. Um, And those, you know, in in scripture, they're not subjective terms. We can't interpret kindness and gentleness in our own way. That's kind of Mm -hmm. when we get into the smugness and um, start to act in our own sinful ways. Mm -hmm. So we have to understand Kindness doesn't mean compromise, but, you know, in a specific circumstance, it might mean not getting the last word or it might mean talking over people, just listening. Um, The same thing with gentleness and and understanding that we don't have to speak to somebody in one place that we do in another. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes you're going to have to raise your voice. Sometimes you don't need to raise your voice at all. It's a little pragmatic, but I, I, I think it really helps people in the circumstances and then again, none of that's going to take place if we first and foremost don't have, don't have self control. If we don't have the self control to rein in our sarcasm, rein in our, our snarky wit, which mm-hmm. I it's a second language of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just it's one of those things where it might seem like a little thing to do, but you know, with sanctification, those little things all add up, and
2: mm-hmm. we
1: we start uh, start to become more like Jesus.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that that's something too that. Like you said, I just haven't really taken into consideration when I am thinking of telling someone about Christ or um, preparing for that. A lot of times we say, "Okay, what are the questions we ask when we're hit with this doubt or this criticism?" Or we think about, um, you know, what's what's really the argument that's going to, you know, make the sale or something like that. And we forget that it's the Holy Spirit's work and not ours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just so blessed when you reminded me that the fruit of the spirit matters because the fruit of the spirit in me is the spirit that is going to work in someone else. Mm -hmm. So I just really appreciated that. And moving on in chapter two, this kind of goes off of that. But in chapter two, you talk about how Christians in evangelism specifically, but this is also applicable to every facet of life. um, But we need to be aware of our emotions and our natural inclinations and our shortcomings. Um, Could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Sure. Sure. I'll use the example of um, false accusations. Um, I talk about that a little bit in the book where, um, of course, the the person who's most falsely accused in his or her life was Christ. Mm -hmm. And I talk about there are times when he spoke up and there were times when he didn't say a word. He didn't say a word when he was talking to Pilate. Pilate was asking him questions when he was about to die. And so for us, we have to understand just if we're falsely accused about something, that doesn't mean we have to respond. And that has great implications in general for social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't explain how many times, and again, I've done this before, so it's not like I'm an expert here, but I just things I see, I can't think about how many how many times people have been falsely accused on social media or have just jumped into the conversation just because that is um, – it woos, so to say, our, our natural inclinations, like you said. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have a natural inclination for uh, confrontation or for conflict. Um, no Christian should desire conflict. No mm-hmm. Christian should yeah. desire confrontation. And yet we see that time and time again on social mm-hmm. media and just in person. I mean, it, it's, it's rather frustrating and exhausting mm-hmm. um, just to see all of the conflict that's going on. And I don't know what church you guys go to or what denomination you're affiliate, affiliated with, but I'm a, I'm a diehard SBC. Mm-hmm. And the amount of conflict and confrontation and mm-hmm. name calling and assuming of motives I've seen since the convention,
2: yeah,
1: um, regardless of really where you stand on all the issues, it's been exhausting. And I'm just like, why can't we just get back to the essentials of what we leave not saying different issues yeah. don't matter but mm-hmm. let's stop assuming people's motives in the process and do, you know natural inclinations aren't necessarily a bad thing but that goes back to self-control
0: mm-hmm. have the
1: self-control to understand when you can let your natural natural inclinations kind of take over a conversation um yeah. and, and a great example of it in the book is when it, and, and you kind of alluded to it When we go into a gospel conversation or whatever it is, whether it's spontaneous or not, and we're trying to think about things and questions we're going to ask uh, before the conversation really happens. And that's not a bad thing. But what happens is when we're having a conversation and I'll say something as the person is talking back, we're not listening. All we're doing is thinking of the next thing we're going to say. I do it to my wife all the time and I get in trouble every single time. I'm not listening to her. I'm just thinking about what I'm going to say next, and it reveals yeah. we we don't really care. So mm. it's something we have to think about.
0: Hmm. That's yeah. really good. And I think a lot of that, like I I see it in myself, and it's something I'm working on. But it's just a so much of a focus on self. We mm. are focused on us and what are we going to say to get this person to believe in the gospel or get them to to believe what we're saying, and ultimately. It's just a focus on how can we convert this person. Like maybe that's not not really explicitly what we believe, but I think at the heart of it, and as I examine my own heart, sometimes I see that in myself, and I'm like, Lord, please, please rid my heart of this yeah. desire.
1: Subconscious, I mean, we we could not even understand that we're thinking that way, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what we're doing, and we're just we're we're forgetting. You know, the verse escapes my mind, but we're not realizing that the Holy spirit is going to give us the words. We don't have to sit here and like analyze the situation too much and think, well, what if they say this and I'm going to say this and so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. the Holy spirit will give us the words to say Mm -hmm. what he wants us to say.
2: Yeah. The one side note that I did kind of want to get to is when you were talking about, you know, acknowledging our natural inclinations and, um, how you put it, as they are limitations to when we are evangelizing. They are not helpful. Um, I think that really goes against the grain for a lot of people in our generation and a lot of mainstream Christianity. Um, I'm not going to get into, you know, is Myers-Briggs, is the Enneagram, are they good or bad? We've addressed that before. But what is concerning is that so many people use these to maybe further explain to themselves how they will conduct themselves in a conversation or to justify how they do respond. And sometimes like for me, my natural inclination, my Enneagram number says terrible things about me when it comes to um, evangelizing. It's not good, but of course no one's going to say that or think that of their, of themselves um, or the Enneagram is never going to tell you something you don't want to hear because that's bad marketing. But could you just kind of speak into how This is against the grain, but it's also good.
1: Absolutely. So a great example, well, not the greatest example, but a personal example would be I'm a natural uh, introvert. Mm -hmm. I'm naturally introverted. And even stuff like this right here, um, part of me is like cringing. Okay. But it's one of those things where for the longest time, I would use my natural introvertedness to... Um, not do my due diligence to get involved in people's lives and have people over for dinner and get to know people and, you know, just really fellowship and manual at church and ask people questions that I don't normally talk to, just simple things like that. I use my natural tendency to just want to be secluded and be to myself to not talk to somebody. Um, and that's the same thing with evangelism. I mean, introvert, introvertedness is not necessarily a vice. Uh, but we can use it as an excuse not to obey the Great Commission. I've done it before. Um, and we, so take introvertedness and, and, you know, if a natural inclination is, you know, you're naturally inclined to be rough around the edges or you know that you're prideful or you know that you're arrogant or too snarky sometimes or too sarcastic, I talk about it in the conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's not. It's not an excuse not to obey the Great Commission the whole point of the book is making sure we're not offensive in our gospel presentations because the gospel is already offensive. Mm -hmm. But what I'm not ever saying is that doesn't mean I don't want you to get into the conversation. That just means I want you to rely on the Holy Spirit and not your own instincts. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. we've lost the point when we think that our natural inclinations, it's good that we're recognizing that they can be bad, but we're losing the point if we think "Mm, maybe I shouldn't obey the great commission at all then.
2: Yeah, so good. And I am going to go back just to something that you did mention earlier. Um, Something I really, really appreciated about this book was that even though the topic was centered around evangelism, you also talk a bit about the church and Christian fellowship, and it's very applicable in those circles as well. And I think that there is an aspect of what we've been talking about that is needed in evangelism, but also really needed in the body of Christ and in those conversations. And in the book, you make the case that unity is not optional. And we hear a lot about unity um, in politics these days. We don't really hear it too much in the church. Um, A lot of people, you know, it's kind of all or nothing in those relationships sometimes. But could you just explain what unity looks like in the church and what the mindset of the Christian of the church should be?
1: So I think this foundationally goes back to humility. Um, I've preached a sermon on two or three occasions that talks about how there will be no unity in the church if we do not have humility. And I base it off of Philippians 2 with Christ's example of humility. And I think that is a great way to start. We can't have unity in the church if we aren't humble, if we aren't humble as Christ is humble. Um, And a good example, practically, per se, would be kind of how Al Mohler and uh, Gavin Orland, the book I quoted in the book, Mm
0: -hmm. they talk
1: about the theological triage um, and how we fight and we fight and we bicker over secondary issues that they matter. I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm a Baptist, I'm not a Presbyterian, so I don't believe we should baptize babies, Mm -hmm. Um, things like that. Uh, We get so caught up in secondary theological issues that we forget to have unity in our church and that we have a connectedness, um, a mutual interest over the gospel, and it affects our unity in the church. And in doing so, it affects our witness to the community or to the world. Um, If we're so caught up in bickering with the people inside the body of Christ, we're not going to be the best we can be as his body. Um, I I think this has practical implications on a personal level. Um, This did happen in my church, but I'll, I'll kind of be pretty general about it. But there can be people within the church who make it their mission to create dysfunction in the body of Christ. And this, you know, this goes back to natural inclinations. And some people are naturally inclined to just cause strife and cause conflict and cause commotion because it feeds their sin. It feeds mm-hmm. their pride and their ego. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where if we don't have peace in the church, we're not going to um, really have peace in the community because people are going to see our behavior. If, if we are always acting like jerks out in public and so on and so forth, then if it's at least where, where I live, you know, we're a town of 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. Most people know who you are. If they know you go to so-and-so church, they're going to affiliate your behavior with that church. And as a, uh, you know, I hate using the term nowadays because, I, you know, I believe in it, but I'm not as staunch about it anymore. As a Calvinist, th- there's already a stigma around being a Calvinist that we have yeah. to deal with, okay? Yeah. And so we already have, have to have have to deal with that. And so now we're playing into the stereotypes and proving them to be true by simply being jerks about everything. Mm -hmm. So the point is we need to make sure we're being peaceful Christians, being at peace with everyone, not compromising, but being at peace with everyone so we can further advance the gospel in our communities.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so good. And I think just going back to what you're saying with, people like that. Um, something that you brought up in the book is, you know, perhaps you did share the gospel, but did your tone cover it up? Did the way you presented it was the gospel effectively delivered? Mm -hmm. And I think it all goes back to humility, humility, that that's so essential. And it's something so difficult to grasp when our culture literally celebrates pride so much. Mm -hmm. Um, But it all goes back to humility, because if you truly are a sinner saved by the grace of God, just having a humble heart and sharing the gospel with others and saying, you know, here's here's who I am because Christ saved me like I had nothing to do with it and and understanding that and then understanding the humble aspect of. I also have nothing to do with you understanding and putting your faith Mm -hmm. in it as well. Mm -hmm. Because if we think that we have a part in that also, or we are going Mm -hmm. to save them by the immense amount of theological knowledge that we portray or all the points of Calvinism that we can name Mm -hmm. off, like that, that's nothing, you know?
2: And especially when, when you're talking to someone who has not been saved.
0: And if you're
2: talking to someone who does not know God, they may not care to be humble in that conversation. So the second you bring in a prideful argument or you bring in, you know, um, really good comeback, it's going to just make it more competitive in their minds so that you're not really accomplishing anything in the heart. It's just an outward who can have the last word who can win. And that's not productive to sharing Christ.
1: And I see that this is just YouTube stuff. Okay. But like I've seen it so much where these apologists who know so much, or they they just have these arguments with these people mm-hmm. um, about, you know, all this different apologetic stuff, and whether they get to the gospel or not is not really the point. Whether we know it or not, we can think we're just trying to win an argument mm-hmm. instead of trying Gosh. to share the gospel with somebody. Mm-hmm. And you you alluded to having a nice tone, um, and, and that's, that's a good thing to have. You know, I, I talk about in the book, and I'm like, I'm not being the tone police.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I
1: don't like the culture's insistence that we have to always have a nice tone and say things so politely and all this stuff. There's a time and place to be blunt. Mm-hmm. But tone still does matter. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a story I write about in the book. And I, I felt awkward even writing about it because, I mean, there are some people who like to toot their own horn. I don't try to or I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wrote it and I talk about it because I think my wife can attest to it, but you know, you guys, you guys read the book and say, so you know, but there was one story or one, one afternoon I was with uh, my, you know, she's my wife now, but my then girlfriend and we were at her apartment after church and it was probably two or three o'clock and we got a knock on her door and I'm like going, well, this is strange. This never happens. I opened the door and there are two LDS sisters mm-hmm. standing before me. I'm going, okay, we're about to have a conversation. Because in his providence, we had literally two weeks ago just gotten back from a Mormon mission trip in Provo, Utah, Mm -hmm. where all we did was learn Mormon doctrine and, you know, what they really believe and all this stuff. So we were set and ready to go. So we invited them in, have a conversation. And listen, Mormons are the nicest people you ever meet.
0: They really are. are. They are. They're so sweet. They're
1: the nicest people. And so we had a very nice conversation and we talked about grace. We talked about heavenly father, Jesus Christ, how we both say those words. and mean, two different things. Um, you know, I made the argument about, you know, you think he's the brother of Satan. I think he created Satan, all of this stuff. And I think I was being very gentle and compassionate because I know Mormons are that way. At one point in the conversation, we were kind of going around in circles and I had to tell myself, I have to tell a few things that I have to say, even if it offends them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I talked about how Joseph Smith is a false prophet, talked about how Mormonism or the Latter-day Saint Church is not Christianity. They're not the same things. Mm -hmm. Um, I I said as plainly as I can that if you continue to believe this way, you, you you need to repent of your sins and believe in the gospel and turn away from this false gospel. I said it in probably the most polite way I can say it. Mm-hmm. And I made one of them cry. I didn't want to do that. No Christian should, should with his or her words want to make another person cry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the point of the conversation, it broke my heart because I didn't want that, that to happen. I was like, I'm sorry I made you cry, but it's still the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the point is, you know, we never saw them after that, even though they are right next to our apartment, but the point is, we can have the nicest tone. We can do everything right. We can be gentle and compassionate and you know, not mess up at all. But because of the offensive nature of the gospel, if we proclaim it faithfully, it's going to offend people mm. always. Now, it might offend them and they might get convicted on the spot. Hallelujah. Amen. We want that. They may get offended and just leave. They may get offended and curse you out. They may get offended and punch you in the face but at least you're being faithful. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yes. I think that section was called gently blunt. And it did really hit me, even just the title as I tend to be a rather blunt person. And that has been something that I have just very much had to bring into submission to Christ and daily have to work very hard at. Um, and I was just like, you know what, sometimes being blunt is okay, but how can I do it gently? Mm-hmm. You don't
1: come across I, as a blunt person, so you're doing good. Well, I'm working on <laughs> it. It's
2: <laughs> it's
0: the spirit. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something that super convicted me. And I think that I, you know, definitely have to work on in the tone aspect is I'm a very, and it's not like a horrible thing, but I'm a very passionate person. I, mm-hmm. I get very passionate about like very little things. And so when I'm passionate about the gospel, I, mm-hmm. I want you to believe it right here, right now. <laughs> and that's not always the case. So, I mean, that's where the humble aspect comes in of understanding, you know, it's not, it's not me changing hearts and, and understanding where my tone is and how to lovingly share it with people. Mm -hmm.
2: So to bring this conversation to a close, you close your book by identifying two fundamental issues in Christ-like evangelism. And they are truth without love and love without truth. And you somewhat describe them as dying on the wrong hills or not dying on the right hills. So do you want to just kind of close with explaining that and what that means?
1: Sure. The amount of people that have given me feedback on the book so far have almost unanim- unanimously told me their favorite chapters are those two chapters. And honestly, it was one of those weird things when I was writing that I thought I was getting too far away from the main idea, mm-hmm. but it looks like I didn't. So that's good. Yeah. Um, so truth without love. That's the, the truth without love part is honestly more in line with the theme of the book. As Christians, we have the truth. We'll, o- we obey the truth. We love the truth. We know the truth, all this stuff. And yet many times we don't have love, um, how that plays out in different contexts. That's always going to be different, but we have the truth, but we don't display love very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, 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 you know our, our sin gets in the way a lot of the time and we don't display the love of Christ. And then the second one love with that truth kind of gets into um, more weighty matters because part of the problem with love with that truth is if it's if it's truly love with that truth it's not really love. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. You know the, the great example is liberal Protestantism, uh, the the liberal church and you know they they champion being activists for the LGBTQ community. And most of them, maybe, maybe all of them, um, you know, they're okay with abortion, all of this stuff. And they want to be so accepting of people and let everybody in the door, everybody's gonna be a member all of this stuff. When in reality, love without truth is just simply enablement. Um, Mm -hmm. if we don't have the truth, we're not going to have biblical love. And so, you know, truth of that love is, you're a Christian. You you've been bought by by the blood of Christ, but you need a little sanctification. You you need to, you know, you need to decrease and let Christ increase a little bit, and just get out of the way and not be uh, a jerk. Sometimes, essentially, sometimes mm-hmm. it means you need to read the room. Um, you're you're not going to talk to a person in Starbucks the way you would, you know, talking to people on a street corner. Mm-hmm surely you, you know, people will understand social situations to where that's not going to be the same, uh, tone of voice. But if it's love with that truth, um, that becomes an eternal issue for the most part. I mean, I, well, I say for the most part, you know, it, it, it's, it's all, um, if we have love with that truth, then we don't have the truth. If we don't have truth, we don't have the real gospel. And so, and yet even I talk about, Christians can sometimes behave this way that believe the truth, and yet they compromise to simply appease people. If we're trying to skirt around conversations as Christians uh, simply to not hurt pe- hurt people's feelings, then we are doing a disservice to the gospel. And so that kind of goes in with both camps, truth with love or without love and love without truth. But those two sections kind of culminate the whole book. And that's kind of what you know I point to is What's the remedy? Well, the remedy, of course, is is the remedy for everything. That's Jesus Christ. But practically, it's having truth and love. Um, I was going to actually title chapter nine, I believe, um, a balanced witness, because Mm -hmm. in that original blog post, that was the section. It was a balanced witness. Mm -hmm. But then I decided to do a supernatural witness, you know, to allude more to the fact that we can't have truth and love without the Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen. Mm, And so if we want to be effective witnesses for the gospel, we must be Christians who, who have the truth and who have love.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. That is something that we constantly say, you know, the most loving thing that we can do is tell you about your desperate need for Jesus and tell you about the hope that is in the message of the gospel but for the world, this is not going to seem loving at all um, because because of that misunderstanding of what true love is. And so I think this ties perfectly to end it on. You know, you've said many times the gospel is already offensive enough. So we, we don't need to be offensive. We need to be loving. Um, so could you explain what you mean by the gospel is offensive, but why it is also the most wonderful thing ever?
1: Yeah, so it's offensive because of what it says about man's nature. Um, no unbeliever, any of us before we came to Christ, loved the message of the gospel until the Holy Spirit changed our hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not like how he said, you know, we are, no, nobody is good, no, not one, or that Jeremiah seventeen nine says that the heart is deceitful above all things. There are countless verses in scripture that point to you know, how awful and wicked we were. Ephesians 2, 1, we are dead in our sins and trespasses it's an offensive message. Um, the, the, I talk at first a little bit about how many people are offended by the notion that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Why? Why would anybody be offended that it's not your own work? You had nothing to do with it. Like it was a gift of grace. Mm-hmm. And because it implies that we couldn't do it on our own. We, we, we want to uh, contribute. We want to do some of the part. We want to do all of it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and salvation by grace alone implies there's something so wrong with you that you couldn't do it on your own. You needed somebody to do it for you. And of course that was Christ. Mm-hmm. And so that is the offensive nature of the gospel. The cro- Jesus dying on the cross implies that there's something very, very and profoundly wrong with us. And of course there is. Um, and that's why uh, that's why we have the gospel now. And there was another point to that. What was the other
2: question? Why is that a good thing?
1: Why is the gospel a good thing? So there was, you know, of course, I'm going to shamelessly plug back to an old blog post I wrote, but there was a blog post I wrote about how believing and understanding that you're a bad person is a good thing. To put it in a short sentence, we can't marvel and admire and adore the beauty of the cross if we do not understand and admit that we are wicked sinners Mm -hmm. um so yeah at, at face value um an unrepentant unbeliever is not going to love the the message of the gospel because it is offensive it says you're not good you need christ but why the gospel is a good thing when he does convert us and we can look back and we can see the beauty of what happened because the cross is following to unbelievers. They're never going to understand it until the Holy Spirit allows them to. But we look back and we see that Jesus Christ died for us, even while we were still sinners. Um, It is such a good thing to be able to admit to ourselves. I can't experience the benefits of the cross, namely salvation until I recognize my sin. And that stuff even goes on in church um, sadly, but we can't understand the beauty of the cross until we understand the depths of our sin. Mm.
0: So good.
2: So amen good. to that. Yes. Yay. We landed on the gospel. That's where we always try to end.
0: And if not, there's an issue. <laughs> so yay. Well, Blake, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a joy to have you. Do You just want to end by telling our audience, we already said it, but let's say it again, where they can find your book and where they can follow you on social media.
1: So you can find the book at Amazon. Um, that's about it. Since it was a self published book through Amazon's uh, program or whatever, you can go through Amazon and you can get your sweet prime shipping. You can go through me. It just takes longer. Uh, so for those who are, you know, akin for those who like to boycott places and don't like Amazon, mm-hmm. you can go through me. <laughs> um, So it's either through Amazon or through me, either one you'd like to do, Um, just reach out to me. And so I I blog weekly at theologyandlife.com. It's actually theology-and-life.com. You can find me on social media. On Facebook is just Blake Long. Um, Twitter, it's at BlakeLong94. And then on Instagram, it's at Blake underscore Long94. Um, Yeah, that's about it.
2: Perfect. Awesome. And I will just close by saying that, you know, this has been just such a great conversation, but for those of you listening, you really need the book. It's not long. It's not hard to get through and it's not hard to read. You can do it. You can understand it. It's not even that expensive and we'll be doing giveaways if that's an issue, but really just to make sense of um, this conversation, I think it'll be really helpful. And it's also just very practical for Christian life in general. So
0: go to Amazon and get the book. Yes. Thank you so much, Blake.
1: Thank you, guys.